It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you need paid family leave. It doesn't matter if you can't take care of your kids and you don't have the money to pay for childcare. It doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with. And so they realized that these were issues that they could use to get these policies and the politicians who support them in power. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. It's now apparent that both Democratic Senate candidates in the Georgia special election, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, have won, shifting control of the U.S. Senate to Democrats. Warnock will be the first black Democrat to ever represent the South. This victory capped an enormous grassroots organizing effort to mobilize voters, especially among black and brown citizens. Some of the groups that led this most notably were Stacey Abrams' New Georgia Project and Fair Fight. But another less visible but powerful force was also at work, a grassroots movement to organize voters to back candidates who supported the care economy, that is, expanding child care, services for the elderly and the disabled. We're going to begin with Sue Halpern, who wrote about this care economy and the activism that powered it, Uh, that has been largely under the radar, and she wrote about it in The New Yorker this week. Uh, Sue Halpern, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Tell us about, I mean, you know, I've been following, I think as many political junkies have, um, sort of incessantly this Georgia election, since it was the main political news since the November 3rd election. I had not heard about the groups who you wrote about. One is called Women Affect Action Fund and the other Care in Action, nor had I heard much about the issues that they were mobilizing around. So tell us about this kind of under-the-radar effort to make care issues and the care economy um, swing the election that we just saw uh, this week. So the care economy is um, this economy that we all participate in, I think, um, but we don't recognize it as part of kind of the economic conversation. Um, and it has to do with the, the work that people do either for pay or not for pay, uh, providing childcare and home health care and care to people who are elderly or disabled. And, um, and basically this is considered women's work has been historically. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you don't hear about it um, because it's it's invisible in the same way that women's work is invisible. Um, but um, these groups that you mentioned, um, Women Affect Action Fund and uh, Care in Action, which is part of the Domestic Workers Alliance, um, realized that there are plenty of people who are Um, looking at these issues and are living these issues and are really in trouble, um, especially because of the pandemic. And so um, they have been organizing around these issues. Um, Women Affect Action has uh, started this really in um, Virginia in 2017 and found that it was a really effective way to to get people out to vote. Um, And they found the same thing during the general election um, and they found that basically these are issues that are really apolitical. 
you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you need paid family leave, it doesn't matter if you can't take care of your kids um, and you don't have the money to pay for childcare. It doesn't matter what party you're, you're um, affiliated with. Um, and so they, they realized that, that these were, were issues that they could use to get these policies and the politicians who support them in power. Um, and the same thing with Care in Action. Um, and they started organizing in Georgia in 2018 to get Stacey Abrams elected. Um, and they just kept going. And um, I think they, they contacted um, 8 million people um, over the course of the last election, this election cycle, um, uh, to, to, to mobilize them. And a lot of them were people, as they told me, who no one ever talked to before. Um, who felt disenfranchised because they felt like they weren't part of the conversation or that their issues weren't part of the conversation. And are we speaking, uh, you know, people who no one ever talked to before? Uh, who exactly is, give us a profile of who that person is. It seems that, you know, in Georgia, at least, I mean, I just read that $800 million was spent on this special election. And somebody, uh, my son was showing me a college classmate of his who lives in Atlanta, one day's haul of political mailers. It covered completely uh, their kitchen table. So who is it that hasn't been reached by this onslaught? Well, you just said it, actually. Your son's friend was in Atlanta. And so what was happening, I think, is that a lot of the people who were getting these mailers and getting the phone calls and getting the door knockers were in places like Atlanta in the, in the big metropolitan areas. And one of the things that Karen Action was very cognizant of was that there was a part of Georgia that's rural and black. It's, it's called the Black Belt, not because it's rural and black, but because historically um, it's where the most fertile soil was in Georgia. Um, so anyhow, it's, you know, it's rural and we know what rural is like when you're doing door knocking, it's really hard. Um, and these were people who didn't necessarily vote or didn't vote very consistently. Um, and they realized, they, Karen Action realized that this was a kind of an untapped group of people that really um, were disenfranchised for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, the main one being that they were poor and black in a state that, you know, is, is um, very effective at, at voter suppression. Um, and so, um, you know, they went after those people. Um, and I read some of the comments that, that people were making to them, which is basically, you know, no one ever talked to us before. No one came by. No one cared about the things that we care about. So, you know, yes, there was a lot of money spent. It was probably spent, you know, on television and on mailers that were going to the, you know, the big um, counties in in Georgia. Right. And one of the points you make is that um, we we know how effective this can be because um, looking at these organizations who worked very hard in the battleground states, also in Virginia, um, that a, a post-election study, and this is, I think, from 2018 election estimated that the personal conversations at the doors in Virginia caused an 11% vote swing to the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Ralph Northam, um, and that about a third of them said that COVID-19 made care issues more visible and important to them. 
Why weren't Republicans able to capitalize on those same issues? Um, well, they could. <laughs> and and I think one of the things that I, I talked to Lisa Guide about, Lisa, who's one of the co-founders of the Women Effect Action Fund, is that this shouldn't be prime, you know, only and exclusively a Democratic Party issue. This is really a, an issue that affects every one of us. And so, you know, one of their goals is really to put this on the agenda for both parties. Um, but, you know, as we know, um, the Republican Party has largely been captured by big money um, and, uh, you know, not necessarily that interested in helping, you know, working people. So, um, so in fact, you know, if they want to do the thing that they say they want to do, which is, you know, be a more in inclusive party, this is someplace that they could work uh, towards and work on. Um, and it's funny, the, the, the morning that my piece came out, um, I was forwarded a message from a Republican operative who said, I love this article. This makes so much sense. So, you know, um, it's out there. It's open. You know, it's open season. Anyone can do this. So talk about what is the Biden agenda around the care economy? Basically, you know, the Biden administration is interested in um, making sure that people who need paid family leave can get it, uh, making sure that there is child care and elder care and disability care available. So there's money. It's a, it's a big, big budget item um, for them. Um, and, and, and essentially um, bringing these issues to the forefront of people's minds um, and the political process and, and making sure that the people who provide this care um, are, are fairly compensated and have, a, uh, you know, the, their dignity, if, if not restored, you know, um, put, put forward. Um, you know, again, as I said before, these are issues that are, are you know, largely taken for granted. Um, and I think the Biden plan is, is basically to say, look, you know, what COVID taught us is that it's really, really important to have a safety net. And you can't necessarily just rely on the person living in your house who also has to make a living somehow. So talk a little bit about the opportunity uh, I hesitate to phrase it this way, the opportunity of the COVID pandemic to raise these issues and perhaps be a radical inflection point in the care economy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you said it better than I could. I mean, I think everybody has been affected by COVID one way or the other. And everybody has seen what it, what it means to have to take care of your family have to take care of people who are sick, have to take care of your kids, you know, while they're going to remote school, they're going to Zoom school and you're trying to work. I mean, COVID has made this sense of urgency um, very apparent to pretty much everybody. And I mean, if there's gonna be a silver lining, maybe that's it, you know, I, I don't think there is actually a silver lining to COVID, but, um, but it is true that we are at a place in our society where some of the, the, the kinds of work that the care workers do 
um, has now become visible. And that has to be a good thing. Hmm. I want to talk about some of the other uh, stories that you've been writing over the last couple of months um, if for The New Yorker. Tell us a little bit about what your 92-year-old mother and her friends have taught you uh, and taught all of us in this election. So my mom was um, very much a political person, um, you know, but a good, you know, a good citizen, let's say. So she worked for candidates, you know, doing door knocking or stuffing envelopes and stuff. And she did that until she was in her late 80s. She, she worked for six months for Hillary Clinton pretty much almost every day. Obviously, the oldest person in the office. Um, and she stopped doing that <laughs> uh, this time around. Um, she was very, very unhappy about Donald Trump. Um, my mother was born... Um, in, during the Great Depression and was a teenager during World War II um, and was very cognizant of the fact that our country was slipping um, towards something very ugly um, and was very eager to vote. Um, and she went to vote. Um, it took, she waited two hours to vote. 92-year-old person waited two hours to vote, but she was very committed. She did it. Um, and when I, I put that out on Twitter, 45,000 people thanked my mother. Um, and one of the things that, that I became very clear to me, you know, watching this pandemic and she lives alone um, and not in a, like a facility of any sort. Um, and she's just been very, very good about not, you know, abiding by, you know, all of the restrictions that have been put on her. And I realized that she and her friends, um, who are all of the sort of same age group, um, don't have the same expectations of, um, you know, the world is made for me, um, that maybe we all have, um, and, and are willing to sort of wait this out and do their part. And they have a much stronger civic sense, a sense of responsibility to other people. Um, than, than a, lot of, a lot of younger generations do. And I think that that's because they came of age during you know, World War II. They, and they saw you know, what an authoritarian government looked like. And they understood how important it is to, you know, to, to be a good citizen. Um, and so I wrote about that and um, have to tell you that my mother said that um, uh, I, made, I, I made her life even better. <laughs> by being the subject of an article in the New Yorker, there was a a, a sentence you, that jumped out at me from your story about your mother, which I, I really loved this piece. And you wrote that the idea uh, you wrote they had seen. Uh, speaking of people of your mother's age, they had seen men like Trump before. The idea that their lives would be bookended by racist, authoritarian, strongmen was almost unbearable. I wonder if your mother's experience, you know, having been through, um, you know, the Bull Connors and the Joseph McCarthy's and, and in the larger world stage, you know, the Hitler's and Stalin's, um, what was her sense, what was her advice to you about getting through the Trump era? Was it kind of a this too shall pass? Or, you know, how concerned was she? that this could mark a long-term 
change in Ter- the, terrified. Yeah. She's terrified. Terrified. And I mean, and so upset. Um, so deeply, deeply upset that it had come to this. I mean, you know, these her generation lived through the 60s. Um they 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 you know maybe they they were um marched you know against the vietnam war um i don't think she did but um you know had a sense of of that this country worked um that you know when a party won an election the other party conceded and went on their way and you know and then they came back four years later and tried to make their case to the american people um and and I think, um, I think, you know, she was so upset and so scared that that the that this legacy that I think her generation thought that they had left us, which was with you know a country that basically worked, um, had had been undone. Um, I will say that um, the the only thing that kind of gave her great pleasure was um, her constantly watching the impeachment trial <laughs> impeachment hearings of Donald Trump uh, <clears throat> I think that was uh, that was a high point um, before you know, it all fell apart but <clears throat> excuse me um, uh, yeah terrified would would be the one word answer to that question have you spoken to her yet today um, I haven't spoken to her but I will tell you something really interesting um, after the general election and when it became clear there was going to be a runoff, my mother started to email pretty much everyone she knew um, and ask, asking them to donate money. So she was part of the $800 million that went into, went into Georgia. She, she kind of mobilized her friend group and her relatives to send money to uh, Reverend Warnock and to John Ossoff. Um, and she was very assiduous about that. Um, so I'm sure uh, when I talk to her today, she's going to be thrilled. Well, let's move on to another uh, story that you reported for The New Yorker this fall, and that is on what's the problem with polls. Uh, you know, it struck me, our skepticism about polls, it struck me in this Georgia special election, we almost completely dispensed with uh, talking about polling there. We knew it was going to be close, and I saw almost no reference in the major media to what polls were saying about Georgia, because we've come to a point where we kind of get that polls are just simply not um, you know, granular enough to talk meaningfully about a race that is going to be decided in the one-point range. So explain... What do we know about polls? Why, for example, what insight do you have about why polling was so wrong in the 2016 presidential election that brought Trump to power? Polls are, are, are um, basically snapshots in time. And so they're not current, for, just to start with. Um, so they, they take a picture of a group of people that has been assembled um, by uh, by statisticians and um, you know polling experts, let's put those in quotes, um, to theoretically represent the electorate or the part of the electorate that they're interested in in finding out about. So you know all those things that I just said already tell you that 
we're in trouble, right? Because first of all, whatever happened two weeks ago might not be happening now, especially in, you know, in the Trump years. Um, and then secondly, is that group of people, that cohort that, that the polling company has put together, what are they representative of? So that, that's just you know, sort of the beginning of problems. And in 2016, um, the polls underestimated the influence of white working class, non-college educated voters um, who historically didn't vote that much, but then they did. Um, and they overestimated the influence of um, college educated white people. So, so those were problems you know, already um, in those polls. But the other issue, and the one that I found the most interesting had to do with what's called the margin of error. So when you look at a poll, it always will say something like, you know, this person is, has this percentage and this other candidate has this percentage, but the margin of error is, you know, two or something like that. And basically that just means that, you know, the, the, the numbers could go in either direction, you know, by two points. Um, and what I learned from talking to people who study polling is that the margin of error is actually itself usually erroneous. Um, and so a better way of looking at the margin of error is if, if the margin of error is four, double it, it's eight. Now it's eight. And basically when you do the math, you can see that, you know, if there's an eight point spread, it could be very easy that the person who looks like they're ahead is actually behind. And, and so the poll is kind of meaningless. Um, and I had a really interesting conversation with one of my editors a couple of days ago, because in the piece I wrote about the care economy, I said that, um, Ossoff and Warnock were in a dead heat with um, Purdue and Loeffler. And my editor said, you know, there was a note and it just said, what do the polls say right now? And I wrote back and I said, it doesn't matter what the polls say right now because the polls aren't right now. And, you know, it, it just, we can't say anything. And I said, you know, we will get in trouble if I say, the polls say that, you know, this candidate or that candidate has a slight, you know, a slightly ahead, I said, because it's meaningless. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not like a terrible idea to look at the polls. It's just a really good idea to look at them very, very, very skeptically. Do you think that this means, I mean, the polling industry is a multi-million dollar industry. It is baked into um, campaigning these days. It's very expensive. So small candidates, for example, in Vermont, we have almost no polling that goes into most of our races because it's just too expensive. Um, do you think that this means that polling is going to be less and less relied upon in politics? Not necessarily, um, in part because the uh, industry, the ancillary industry to polling as political consultants um, who have often have very strong ties, if not financial ties to polling companies. So I think it's gonna be a while before they go away. However, there's more different kinds of polling that's taking place uh, online, for instance, um, which is much cheaper. You can, you can poll you know, 100,000 people online much more easily than you can ever poll you know, a, a sample um, by telephone. Um, and there are other things that are, are happening in that industry um, people are looking at what's called sentiment analysis. So they're looking at social media, for instance, and trying to figure out, you know, what 
people are thinking and what they're saying and using that as a way. Um, but the other thing is there, there, there's really like two kinds of polling. There's the kind of polling that most of us look at, you know, who's ahead, how they're doing, that kind of thing. But most campaigns do internal polling. And, you know, they're doing internal polling to find out which of their, the, the, their targeted populations, what they care about, what they're thinking about, if they're likely to vote, that kind of thing. And I don't think that kind of polling is going to go away because it's, you know, it's useful to candidates. Finally, uh, you know, today in the Congress, we're going to see Republicans object to the, uh, you know, the final confirmation of Joe Biden as president. You've written about how Republicans changing attitudes. Explain where this is coming from, where Republicans are now challenging something they used to cherish, which was states' rights to do just about anything, but in this case, elect a president. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, somehow, and I, I don't, I, I'd like to go back and try to figure this out, and I think it sort of starts, sorry, I'm going to cough. <coughs> I think um, this starts, you know, back in the 60s, maybe before, the Republicans recognized that the country, especially as it became more diverse, as it became younger, um, as it became more um, sort of economically uh, just sort of equalized, although we know that that's not true anymore, but they recognized that, um, that it was gonna be very, very hard to win elections if we had a, uh, a representative uh, group of people voting. Um, and so very, very early on, they recognized that. And so they started to um, really engage very heavily in voter suppression um, efforts, both in the states um, and in the courts um, and legislatively. And I think that you know what we're seeing now is just sort of that, all of that sort of coming to fruition. Um, they don't want all of us to vote. They don't want all of our votes to count um, because they know that the majority of Americans are not radical in the way that they are. You know, they are radical. Um, they don't believe in the Constitution. They don't believe in representative democracy. And they've somehow managed to twist the language to make that seem patriotic, and it's not. And most Americans know that. Um, and so and they know that most Americans know that. And so they're doing everything they can do um, to try to subvert the very thing that makes this country great, which is that we go to vote for the people who we want to have represent us. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Sue Halpern, I want to thank you for joining us once again on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Sue Halpern is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a journalist who lives in Ripton, Vermont. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>